and open a Bible this morning to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. We turn to Exodus chapter 11. If you're following along that's in the Bible that's there in the pew rack in front of you, you can find our passage on page 64. The Old Testament book of Exodus is the, the revel, revealed history that God has rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. We see God's good and sovereign power, even in the most difficult of times, while his people are enslaved. We are confronted with the truth that God is the king above all other powers, which means he has authority over us. Exodus is the, the gospel, the good news of the Old Testament, that God rescues his people, that God provides atoning sacrifices for the sins of his people, that God hears our prayers, that God forgives our sins. In the chapters leading up to chapter 11, we have seen God multiply the miraculous signs. We've seen nine plagues brought in judgment against Egypt. And now we come to the final plague, where God will bring about the rescue of his people. Listen to the word of God. This is Exodus 11. I'll read the whole chapter. Exodus 11, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again, but among the Israelites not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you make yourself known to us through your word, that we see on display your power, your might, even your judgment. Lord, as we read your word, let us find in this gospel truth our hope, that you are the God who brings judgment, but you are the God who provides for our judgment through Jesus, our Savior. Lord, for those that listen to the truth of your word without, without an understanding of this gospel, Lord, I pray that they would come now to faith in Jesus Christ, turning from trusting themselves to trust in you, Lord, where there are questions or doubts about your, your goodness or your truthfulness, let us find our hope in you. Reveal to us your compassion and your love. Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
Who's afraid of the dark? I suspect we all are, at least in some circumstances. The unexplained noise that wakes you in the middle of the night and startles you. Waking in confusion, in an unexpected and unfamiliar surroundings, even if it's just on vacation. Walking late at night through a quiet and empty church building. Now, we admittedly rarely experience deep darkness or prolonged darkness. Our lights are just a switch away. There's, even if you're outside, away from, from a light switch, you're, well, you're surrounded by the, the light shining from nearby cities. And we have, of course, the constant presence of our, of our electronic devices with their blinking lights and radiating lights. In the, in the ninth plague, the plague which we saw in last week's sermon, God pushed Egypt into utter darkness for three days and three nights, a darkness that, that left them stumbling around with, without hope, as if the whole world had come undone. And so God, in, God, in bringing that judgment, pushed Pharaoh to the place where, where Pharaoh actually in, in chapter 10, verse 24, said, fine, just go. Even take your, your women and your children with you, but, but leave behind your flocks and your herds. That was Pharaoh's concession after the ninth plague. But of course, that would be insufficient because if he was sending them to worship God, then they would need to take sacrifices along with them. But even more than that, Pharaoh's concession to let them go without their flocks and herds meant he was letting them go only to return. For how far could they make it without the, the provisions that would be brought by having their flocks with them? And so the chapter ends, chapter 10, it ended with, with the Lord then hardening Pharaoh's heart and, and he even rescinds. He won't let them go, but, but casts Moses out of his presence. And now, as Moses stands there in the, in the throne room of Pharaoh, we are reminded that, that he's bringing one more word of judgment. And this, too, will bring darkness. Not just the ordinary darkness of night, but, but we read in, in our chapter, chapter 11, verse 4, that God uh, speaks through Moses saying, this is what God will do. Look at verse 4. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. Now, when we hear that, that description that it's midnight, we think of a specific time of night. Because when you are stirred in the night, you just glance at the clock and you know what time it is. Now, of course, ancient people understood that midnight was the, the, the 12 hours farthest away from when the sun was overhead at noon, but they didn't measure it as if that were an important point in the night. What it's really saying is in the middle of the night, in the darkest of the night, when you are most vulnerable, when you are most at risk, when it is darkest, then God says, I will come throughout Egypt. Who's afraid of the dark? If it means waiting for Yahweh to bring death to my house, then I think I'd be afraid of the dark. And so we're reminded that Moses is here now bringing this last plague. Now, we, of course, we've been counting, so we knew that the 10th plague is, well, the 10th of 10. But the people in Egypt didn't know that. They didn't know at which point God would relent. And so we're told that, that this is one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt that God brings. 
We finally reach the end. This is the, the culminating point of, of God's action to bring his people out of slavery. And we're, we're promised that this time it's actually going to succeed. All of the other plagues we knew going in weren't going to work because, they, I mean, they weren't, they weren't going to bring about the immediate release of the people. They were going to work by piling up judgment on Egypt so that not just Pharaoh, but all of the Egyptians and the Israelites too would see that God's power and glory were at work. But we're told that, that this time, after this 10th plague is brought, Pharaoh will let the people go. And not only does verse 1 tell us that he's going to let them go, he's going he's to drive them out. He's going to be done with them, get rid of them, push them out. And verses 2 and 3, the Israelites should go and ask the Egyptians for gold and silver because they will take with them the treasures of Egypt. As if the Egyptians at this point, those that, those that have, have put their trust and, and see that the Yahweh is bigger than their gods are going to say, fine, Yahweh can have it. The others who are still in rebellion will, will say, whatever payment your God needs, just, just be gone. Get out. And so God will rescue his people and provide for his people because the Lord, while Pharaoh's heart is still hard, the Lord has changed the hearts of the Egyptians that they want the Israelites gone. And so it means that, that God will succeed in rescuing his people. But tragically, it also means that this plague will bring death to Egypt. Now, some of the other plagues have brought death to those that, that wouldn't flee from the, the hail. But here we're told that the death will come into each household. Chapter 12 specifies that each house experiences death in Egypt. But again, we've known this was coming. God, back in chapter 4 of the book of Exodus, before Moses had even gotten to Egypt, God had explained where these plagues were ultimately going to lead. Back in chapter 4, verse, verse 22, God gave the command to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you, Pharaoh, refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. We've known that this is where we were going to end up with the death of Pharaoh's son. But we learn here the, the death will spread even further, not merely to, to the, the, the one who sits on the throne, to his firstborn, but even to the enslaved girl, the one who, who is out doing the menial tasks that you only leave for the enslaved or for prisoners of war, grinding the, the grain. Even she will lose her firstborn. Because Yahweh is himself getting directly involved, personally involved at this point. Look back at verse 4. The warning that, that Moses speaks to Pharaoh, he says, This is what Yahweh says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Now, of course, in each of the previous plagues, it is God who has brought about the judgment, but, either th but, but, but through an intermediator, either through through Moses or Aaron lifting a, a rod of judgment, or, or by God sending locusts, or God sending hail. This time, who will bring the judgment? Yahweh says, in the middle of the night, I will go throughout Egypt. God won't just work through secondary measures. He will personally bring about this final phase of judgment this final plague, which shows us God's absolute sovereign power. 
he will personally gain victory over Pharaoh. He will personally show that he is the one who has defeated the gods of Egypt. And yet, even as we see God's power, we might be tempted when we, when we read it to think, but is that the right thing to do? Is God good in doing this? God himself is going to wander through Egypt like some kind of sinister Santa Claus. Instead of bringing gifts to each household, bring death into each household. Is that, is that good? I mean, we might even be okay. As if, as if Pharaoh has brought judgment upon himself, we might even be okay if God goes to Pharaoh's house. But God is going to wander to the house of every Egyptian and bring death everywhere. There will be mothers who, who awake in the night and find their sons dead in their cribs. Children will die at the hand of Yahweh. Now, it's important to remember, wherever we are in Scripture, that, that this is not just the God of the Old Testament. Oh, good, we've gotten past that, that angry guy way back then, and now we as Christians have, have a, a God who is loving. No, wherever you are, wherever you flip open the scriptures, we have a God who brings judgment and rightly brings judgment. Because every one of us born with the guilt of Adam and Eve comes into the world in rebellion against God. Every one of us at any moment could bear the weight of God's judgment. God's judgment could come for you in the darkness tonight. And whenever God brings his judgment, he is right to do so. Any delay that there has been from the, from the, the, the time in which, which Adam and Eve sinned until now, any delay is, is evidence of God's patience and mercy. Any forgiveness that ex- is extended to any person is only by God's grace. We all deserve punishment. Now, of course, we see the guilt of Pharaoh in this passage. We see that first as as Pharaoh, at the end of of chapter 10, had told Moses, get out of here. The next time I see you, you will die. And now, Moses bringing this final word of judgment, perhaps hoping that that each of, at at some point, in each of the plagues, that, that Pharaoh would relent, that it wouldn't get to this point where Moses would have to be the one who brings the word of, of judgment that the firstborn sons of Egypt would die. But, but look, at, look at Moses' response as he finishes this warning at the end of verse 8. We're, we're told in verse 8, Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. Moses, to this point, has seemed brave, resilient, uh, 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 steadfast. But now we're told explicitly he is angry, not at God, but at Pharaoh. He's not angry that God is bringing judgment. He's angry that that Pharaoh's sin, that Pharaoh hasn't relented, that hasn't turned from his sin. Moses' anger, uh, commentators point out, is a reflection of God's righteous anger. Pharaoh himself is guilty. Even though Pharaoh has had his heart hardened by God. Moses leaves in anger in verse 8, but then verses 9 and 10 explain to us that Yahweh had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. 
The reason that Pharaoh continued to refuse was by God's sovereign purpose so that the the plagues would be multiplied and that the people would see the power of God. And verse 10 explicitly says that Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Pharaoh is guilty because what God is doing is is not, it's not as if God, Pharaoh had a good heart or a soft heart and then God hardened his heart because that's the, the, the imagery we might use when we, in English, speak about having a hard heart. We just think of someone who's cruel. And, then it, and it looks like God is the one who made him cruel. But what God has done is hardened his heart. Pharaoh had a hard heart by his own choice and God confirmed it. God solidified it. God let Pharaoh choose what he wanted and then God said, you will get what you want. Now, maybe you, maybe you remember the, the cultural phenomenon of a couple decades ago when Regis Philbin sat in a chair with the, the shining lights around him and, and said, who wants to be a millionaire? And it was meant to just be a, a little two-week game show to get you to flip to ABC uh, in the middle of the summer, but people loved it. And so eventually, we, got, we had Regis Philbin on TV every day. Every day asking people uh, uh, trivia questions so that they could build up their bank and, and to get money. And you know that, that especially as you got into the higher amounts of, of a quarter million or half a million or, or a million dollars, when the person gave their answer, what did Regis say? Is that your final answer? Because he needed to confirm that they were sure in their choice. Because, well, the producers had told each contestant, Don't sit there and silently think about your answer. We need you to talk about it out loud. Us watching you in silence is terrible television. So we want you to process out loud your answer. And so if they were if they were were working through their answer of well, I think maybe it's 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 answer D, but well, it could possibly be B. Well, they wanted, the producers wanted that all to happen on air, which meant Regis had to say, is that your final answer? So that they couldn't, the contestant couldn't say, I was still just talking about my answer. I hadn't even given you a final answer. Give me my million dollars. No, he asked, is that your final answer? And it became such a cultural question that, well, we use it today. I mean, maybe even your coworkers or teachers have asked you that kind of question. Is, is that your final answer? And sometimes they ask it in such a way that, that you, the implied uh, response is, well, I guess not. I guess I should come up with a different answer. But what Regis was doing is saying, is that what you want to do? Regis didn't make the choice for the contestant. He just confirmed the choice they had made is the one they really wanted to make. See, that's what God is doing at each of these, at each step in which we read that, that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Often it says God hardened his heart. It's as if God is saying, Pharaoh, is that your final answer? Are you doing what you really want to do? I will confirm it, we'll harden it, we'll make sure that this is, we both know, this is really what you want. See, Pharaoh brings judgment upon himself, judgment upon his nation. Yahweh locks in the final answer, and so the verdict is just. And yet Yahweh's personal involvement should also give us hope. Not only does it show us the, the wrath of God, but it shows us the very compassion of God. Yes, he is the one who, who goes house by house through Egypt, bringing judgment, but he is the one who intervenes on behalf of his people to rescue Israel. 
they will be protected from this final judgment. And next week, as we look at chapter 12, Pastor Mike will, will walk through the, the Passover and how God provided a substitute for the firstborn son of each household. But God himself is personally involved. We, we see that, that he makes a distinction between Egypt, who will receive judgment in Israel, who by his mercy will receive protection. They will be rescued. Look, look back at verse 7. But among the Israelites... Not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. God is protecting Israel. Now, when we, when we hear that, that language of a dog being quiet, or in the, in the, in the Hebrew, it's, it's the dog will, will stick out its tongue. The, we think of, of, a, of a pet that we love. Maybe even one that, that, that barks every time someone comes near the door to kind of warn us. Well, in the ancient world, but particularly in ancient Egypt, dogs were not viewed as house pets. They were wild, roaming scavengers, and so you didn't want them around. And so, so whether it's meant to be a, a, a negative image, that, that there, you won't even have to deal with any dogs wandering through on that night. God is going to so thoroughly protect you that, that you won't even have to worry about, about even, a, even a stray dog being a problem, or it's a, a more positive image, that there will be no disruption so that there will be complete silence, not even a dog barking. It's that God is, is personally involved to protect his people. He has said that these wonders are being multiplied so that people will see his glory and his power. And this helps us see Yahweh's personal involvement to rescue us. God has gotten involved he heard the cries of his people. He has responded. He brought the plagues and piled them up. He multiplied them so that everyone would know of his power and love. And the scriptures make clear to us that God loves us, that God is personally involved in bringing rescue to us, that he doesn't do this merely from, from, a, from a distance, but he is directly involved. We can think of the way the book of Hebrews begins. There's a description that there were, there were ways that God spoke in the past, the ways in which God was involved, but, but he has done something even more significant, even more personal here. The book of Hebrews begins this way. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In the, in the past, God spoke. Yes, he sent spokesmen, prophets to speak. He would even show up in a burning bush. But now, God is personally, directly in the flesh here with us because he has sent his son, Jesus. And, and, and Hebrews 1 continues, that the son is the one whom, he, whom God appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The Son is the, exact, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The one who has come in the flesh is the one who holds the universe in his hand, the one who by his power sustains everything, and yet he is here. He is here, Hebrews tells us, to provide purification for our sins. God is personally, Yahweh is directly involved in forgiving our sins. We see that, of course, most clearly in the work of Jesus on the cross. 
The Jesus himself becomes the one who takes the wrath of God. The one who drinks the cup of judgment. The one who brings rescue. The one not merely who comes as judge, but the one who comes to be judged on our behalf. Think of the ways the Gospels describe Jesus on the night of his arrest and betrayal. We read in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, that the Jesus, after the Last Supper, went with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed with him. He asked them to pray. And then we're told in, in Luke 22, verse 42, we read the prayer of Jesus. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. God himself is here in our midst. Jesus, the Son of God, speaking in, in loving relationship with his Father in heaven, says, if there is any other way, then let's pick a different way. And yet not my will, but yours be done. I will take the judgment personally for my people. And so Luke describes the scene that an angel from heaven appeared to Jesus and strengthened him. And being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Jesus personally comes to rescue us. God is directly involved in bringing salvation to us. And still the final plague is filled with sorrow. It's filled with sadness. We read back in Exodus 11 that there, on the night in which God himself brings judgment, there will be loud wailing throughout Egypt. Mothers and fathers will find their sons dead in bed. There will be great sorrow. Now that word for wailing is a, is a word we've already heard in the book of Exodus. To cry out. It's the same word that was used back in, in chapter 3 at the burning bush when God explained that he was going to intervene. That he heard his people wailing, crying out for help. Back when Moses stood before the burning bush, being given the, the command of God to go and to bring the people out of slavery, we read in Exodus 3, 7, Yahweh said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out. I have heard them wailing because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians." God is coming to rescue his people. He hears their cries and he responds. And yet, in the wailing on the night of, of judgment, to whom can the Egyptians cry out? Pharaoh doesn't care. He has repeatedly and continually said, no, I'm not letting them go. The gods of Egypt have been silenced in the face of Yahweh's power. And yet, when Israel cries out, Yahweh hears their cry. He comes to their rescue. When a baby cries in the night, mom or dad will come to provide care. An unanswered cry is heartbreaking. 
Perhaps because there is no one left to even hear. Perhaps because there's no one who cares. Russell Moore describes his first visit to the orphanage in which he first met his sons. Maybe you've even heard me share this before. But Russell Moore writes, he says, of, uh, as a father going to meet his sons, he says, of all the disturbing aspects of the orphanage in which we found our boys, one stands out above all others in its horror. It was quiet. The place was filled with an eerie science, silence quieter than the Library of Congress, despite the fact that there were cribs full of babies in every room. If you listened intently enough, you could hear the sound of gently rocking babies as babies rocked themselves back and forth in their beds. They didn't cry because no one responded to their cries. This new dad says, the first moment that I knew our boys had received us, at least in some strange and preliminary way, was the moment we walked out of the room for the last time on that first trip. When our little Benjamin fell back in his crib and cried. The first time we had heard him even make the noise. It was because for whatever reason he seemed to think that he'd been heard. And for whatever reason he no longer liked the prospect of being alone in the dark. You are not alone in the dark. Yahweh hears your cries. Jesus has come to our rescue. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, I ask that you would give us comfort and hope through your word. That as we come to celebrate the, the sacrifice of our Savior, that we will be reminded of the depth of your compassion. Jesus' willingness to take our judgment upon himself. Lord, I pray that we would understand the, the good news contained in your word, that you are the God who responds to evil. You are the God who brings about judgment, and yet you are a God, the true God, who is merciful to us. So, Father in heaven, give us the faith to believe, the confidence to trust in you, to see and understand your goodness, to know the depth of your love. Father, we come praying in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.